This is David R. George III, and you're listening to The Captain's Table. Welcome to The Captain's Table at 10 Forward. Welcome to the Captain's Table in 10 Forward, where we have intimate chats with those who have shaped Star Trek in words. My name's Michael Clark, and welcome to this week's show. This week, we have a very special guest we're very excited to have with us, New York Times best-selling author, David R. George III. Hi, David. Hi, Michael. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's great for you to be here. We really appreciate your time this evening. Thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate the invitation. Happy to be here. David, for our listeners, could you tell us a bit about yourself, including how you discovered Star Trek, please? I discovered Star Trek as a young child. Uh, I'm not really sure how old I was, but uh, my dad was a science fiction fan. And, you know, Star Trek was aired, uh, you know, in the 60s and then was rerun. Well, it's still being rerun. I was going to say it's being rerun forever. And it, it actually is. So he sat me down at some point and, and we watched a lot of those episodes and the show grabbed my imagination right from the beginning. And I'm, I'm sure back then it was about spaceships and aliens and phasers and transporters and all of that. But it, it pretty quickly became about way more than that for me. It really became about the notion of inclusiveness, the message of a positive future where everybody gets a seat at the table. I just, that's something that I love about Star Trek that I I find for me is the core of Star Trek. And it's attracted me for a very long time. And so I've I've been a Star Trek fan, basically the huge majority of my life. (laughs) And how did you decide you wanted to become a, a writer? And how did you get into writing? You know, Star Trek might have played a role in that. My my mom taught me to read, and she taught me more than that. She taught me the love of reading and how it just opens the world to you. So I was a reader from a very young age and just always gravitated toward it. And my father actually did a little bit of, he, he did some editing and writing in magazines. And my grandfather actually was uh, an editor and actually did a lot of publicity writing, but he also wrote a, a short novel himself back in, I think the fifties, maybe the forties. So I don't know if it's in the blood, but somehow I gravitated to wanting to tell stories, I think partly from reading, partly maybe from from having writing around my family, and maybe partly from the things that I I enjoyed, like Star Trek. And and those were always stories with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And I always always just loved that, and I always wanted to tell stories. So I've been writing, geez, ah, from a a very young age. And I never wanted to be a starving artist, though. Uh, I wanted to be an artist, just not a starving artist. So I went to college, and I studied mathematics and computer science. And I actually had minor in in writing and philosophy. And eventually, I, I tried decided to try my hand at writing professionally. I wrote a few scripts and ended up eventually pitching to Voyager and ended up selling the very with a, with a uh, friend who actually worked on the show as a script coordinator, Eric Stilwell. And he and I came up with some stories we pitched to the show. And the first story we pitched, we actually sold. And that's actually, that was my, my first professional sale. Wow, that, that was brilliant. You've actually said, in fact, um, with regards to writing for Star Trek, that writing for the franchise counts as a privilege as well as a responsibility I take seriously. I'm very grateful for the opportunities I've been granted. Can you tell me about a little bit about that responsibility you feel you have towards Star Trek 
in terms of writing for the franchise? Well, it's a it's sort of a, a dual responsibility, uh, maybe even a, 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 a tertiary, a, a three-way responsibility. I have the responsibility certainly to the fans. There, there's because Star Trek has existed a long time before me and will exist a long time after, and and even now exists all, all considerably apart from me. I'm only a very small fraction of it. You know, there are people who who love it. I, I'm one of them, and Star Trek. That has a certain nature to it, and I I don't want to to do something that would contradict that uh, that nature. Uh, I I want to be true to the show itself, and, and therefore true true to the fans, true to the readers. That doesn't mean I can't challenge them. That doesn't mean I can't do things that they don't expect and that they might initially find difficult to deal with. That that's a whole different thing. That's that's the issue of storytelling. But I I absolutely have a responsibility to what Star Trek is and, and to to nurture that and try and, and move it forward and certainly not take anything away from it. I also have a responsibility just in the sense that people are buying my books. So I have, I have a responsibility to try to entertain them as much as I possibly can. And uh, and I have a responsibility to myself, too, to, to try and, and, and tell the best possible story that I can. And that's also, obviously, a responsibility to the readers and even to my publisher as well. But I think o- overriding everything sort of is, is the notion that I, I need to be true to the Star Trek universe and therefore to Star Trek fandom. It, it's... It would be a slap in the face to to what I mean, make Jim Kirk or or Patrick Stewart act, you know, dishonorably or in ways that are not true to their character. It would be a slap in the face, in some sense, to the characters, but absolutely to the fans who expect something completely different. They have expectations, and while I can I can challenge some of those expectations and, and try and and push them push the envelope and all of that, I certainly need to stay, as I said, true to the characters. Do, do you see that sometimes as one arm behind your back or do you see that more positive as this is a challenge and th- and this is a challenge for me to to expand the bubble but not cross the line? A long time ago, I might have told you that it was a restriction restrictive in some way. When I started writing or when I started reading poetry and then maybe considering writing poetry and then eventually writing some poetry, I initially had this notion that if you're writing a specific form of poetry, a sonnet or or a synquane or a haiku or whatever that has a specific form, certain number of of syllables, a certain rhyme scheme, you think, or I, I I at least thought, well, this is this is incredibly restrictive. I mean, I have to I I'm trying to get a, a point across, but I, I I'm hampered by this. I, I have one arm tied behind my back. I'm not given all. I can't use all the words I want to use because they don't fit the rhyme scheme or what have you. But, you know, I, I really very quickly realized that that's not really the case. That's certainly not the way I look at it. Uh, just because something has to fit in a certain box doesn't mean it has to have the shape of the box. You just have to make sure it, it, it fits in. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's I'm not going to write a Star Wars story that will fit in the Star Trek universe. That, that it just it doesn't work because they're two different things. So I, I don't look at it at all as restrictive. I really don't. I You have to make the right choices. If I wanted somebody, some character in a novel I wrote to do something, if I wanted uh, Captain Kirk to do something in a certain novel that he wouldn't do, I got to find a different character or I got to find a good reason for him to do it. Something that's that's believable. We know who Jim Kirk is. We've seen him through, through hours and hours of the original series, through a number of films now, and through hundreds 
of Star Trek novels. We know who Jim Kirk is. Doesn't mean we can't add layers to him, but what you do has to fit that character. But that's all right. If I, if I want to do something with him, if I want to push him in a certain way, if I want to make a certain point thematically, I just have to make sure I do it in the right way. I, I don't find it restri- restrictive. I really don't. I, it's, it, I wouldn't even say challenging, although I, I suppose it can be challenging. I, I just This is the sandbox in which I'm playing, and I'm good with that. Within that sandbox, you've actually uh, you, you've written short stories, novellas, and full-length novels. How how do you prepare or research for these, and what are the different skills needed for each of these formats? Well, I tend to be wordy. I think many of my readers might agree. I tend to write long. Part of that, I think, is a function of wanting to tell complicated stories, and so there's only so much you can do in a certain number of pages in in order to tell more complex tales you really at least i need some length the challenge for me sometimes is writing a short story or a novella as opposed to writing a novel because in a novel you've got some room to move some some room to breathe and when i create these complex plots i just can't really do that as much in a you know in a shorter work i'm actually working on an outline right now for my next star trek novel and i'm just trying i know i know the the time frame that the novel is in i know the characters the main characters the main star trek characters that i'll be using but i don't have, i i don't entirely have my story yet i have i have ideas i've been working on it and so what i what i do is i just I kind of start with theme, typically. I start trying to figure out what it is that I want to talk about. And it could be some grand theme, like the pervasiveness and the horror of, say, racism. Or it could be something very simple. It could be a work about love, about the nature of love, about about romantic love or about about familial love or, or whatever. It can be a more personal sort of theme. But I, I typically start with theme and just try and figure out what it is that I want to talk about. And then I I move on to trying to figure out how I'm going to tell that tale with the characters that I have. It's just just a process. I like to ask myself questions. If I if I hit stumbling box, if I'm not moving forward, I start I, I start asking myself questions. What 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 would be what would be interesting for the readers to happen here? Uh, what what would be great to happen here that the readers wouldn't be expecting? And how can I use this to talk about what I want to talk about and also move the plot forward? So it's a it's a process. And actually, that's the hardest writing that I do. Writing a novel, even, you know, I've written, the longest novel I wrote was 225,000 words. The first draft was 1,100 pages. Final draft was 1,000 pages in manuscript. It was 600, I think, something in, in when it was published. But it was 1,000 manuscript pages, the final draft. When I wrote that, it took a long time. But the the outline that I wrote before that, the narrative outline that that has all of the, the story arcs and has all of the the flows of the characters, you know, how they, they change from the beginning of the of the story to the end. All of that, the outline is the hard part. The writing the novel, even though it takes a lot longer, that's sort of the fun part. You know, it can be difficult, it could it can be time consuming, but that outline, figuring out exactly what it is that I want to say, how and how I'm gonna say it in a particular story, that's the really, really difficult writing. For me, anyway, that's that's the really hard part. You actually mentioned there about the stories being complex and, and you like to write complex Star Trek stories. Now, I've been reading Star Trek stories for about 30 years now, and I've noticed a significant change that the novels of the 80s stroke 90s were very self-contained and one book wouldn't lead on from another and 
this was quite good at the time but i've noticed now especially over the last few years that the books are so linked together yes you can pick and pick one up and, and read it but the background story is in other novels do you think star trek fans or the readers of the stories um demand more now they want these complex stories because that's what we're seeing on some films and some television programs where the stories are more linked together or do you think it's the writers and the editors just demanding more and wanting to give the fans more well that's an interesting question i, I think regarding fans and and in this case readers i think different people want different things I think there are plenty of people who just want to pick up a Star Trek novel and just want to read an episode, whether it be the original series or Next Generation or Deep Space Nine or, or the others. And there are other people who prefer to have a, a greater universe and more continuity amongst the books and, and a longer tale. I think a show like Deep Space Nine is particularly suited to that because Deep Space Nine itself as a television series was unlike the other Star Trek series very serial in nature the original series and next generation which came before deep space nine of course were not like that they they were very much self-contained episodes and certainly that was absolutely true of the original series there were very very few you could count them on one hand references from one episode to previous episodes next generation expanded that a little bit but deep space nine was really a show that benefits from watching beginning to end in order because of its serial nature because of the dramatic changes that took place in it so i think Perhaps Deep Space Nine fans in general, not not all of them, certainly, but I'm, I, I would bet that Deep Space Nine fans might want, and I count myself among them, would want books that have a serial nature, that have uh, a continuing story, an ongoing story that change a lot because Deep Space Nine's hallmark was change. And so the, the books have done that. At the same time, it's also incumbent upon a writer to provide a reader who picks up a book any book, even a book, not just in, say, the Deep Space Nine series, but in a, a mini series that's all published, you know, to, to tell one larger tale. Even in that, it's incumbent upon a, a writer to provide a reader everything they need in that novel. You don't want people to feel like they have to go read in, in the middle of reading your book, that they have to go read something else to make sense of things. You have to give the readers everything they need in the, the work that they're reading. So, uh, but as to as to why this has happened, I say partly it's you know Deep Space Nine is is serial in nature, so that may have inspired that. I think some of the writers that are writing right now are just really good writers who demand more of themselves, who want to tell not just good Star Trek stories but good stories, and that's that's actually where I always start with. Telling a good Star Trek story is is the second thing I think of. The first thing is telling a good story. Now I have to do both. I can't I can't just tell a good story and it not be a good Star Trek story if I'm writing a Star Trek novel. But the writers that are writing now, the Una McCormicks and the David Max and the Dayton Wards and the James Swallows, these men and women are are terrific writers and they they demand more of themselves and they want to put more out there. And I think the, the editors that we, we have and that we've had in the past, people like Margaret Clark and Marco Palmieri, are interested in telling more complicated stories and providing more uh, of that kind of experience for the reader. At the same time, we're still putting out standalone novels that you can just pick up and they have there's no real continuity other than, you know, maybe to the sh to the series, the television series itself. Both products are still out there because there are different kinds of readers with different desires, different needs. And uh, so we're trying we try obviously to, to hit everything for everybody. One novel might not necessarily do that, but there are different types of novels out there for everybody. I, I kind of like it. I, I, I like to demand 
a lot of myself when I'm writing. And I, I part of that is actually, as I sort of intimated before, challenging the readers, too. I don't mind doing that. And in fact, I find it challenging. Uh, I like it. I, I find it challenging to myself. Moving away from the novels for a moment, you actually mentioned that um, your first writing job was actually for Voyager, and that was the episode Prime Factors, where you have a story by credit alongside Eric Stilwell. Can you tell us about what it was like writing for Voyager and about the story and just a process around that, please? Well, it was interesting because Eric, as I said, worked as a script supervisor, uh, script coordinator on the show. He had actually written an episode, uh, the story for an episode of T- Next Generation, a great episode called Yesterday's, Yesterday's Enterprise. And he did that with uh, another writer. But Eric knew I wanted to write. I had written some television scripts, and that got me an agent. Oddly enough, all the TV shows for which I, I wrote scripts, all of them went off the air in the same year. <laughs> so uh, timing is everything. But um, it did get me an agent. And uh, at any rate... I, I I wanted to be a writer, and uh, you know, Eric loved Star Trek, and he had written that yesterday's Enterprise episode. So we worked on uh, a couple of story pitches because he he was able to ask to pitch to producers of Voyager. Now this is actually even before Voyager was on the air; it was while it was in production. It might have even been in pre-production at that time, so they hadn't even hadn't even begun filming. But there was a Bible uh, which tells who the characters are, what the, what the what the context of the series is, what all the details, the background details are, and there was a script for the pilot. And so Eric and I beat out some stories and and went to the producers. Michael Piller, who was a creator of Voyager and Deep Space Nine, and was executive producer, he, and head writer, he um, was one of the few people in Hollywood who had no open submission policy, uh, because he he had been helped on the way up in his career and he wanted to help other writers. And so he allowed people to uh, send unsolicited scripts to the show. Now you had to sign a waiver saying that you weren't going to sue the show if they didn't buy your episode and, and things like that. But almost no shows, I don't know of any shows now that do that. And, and there were very few, if any back then either. So Michael had that open submission policy, which allowed Eric and I to pitch our, our episodes to him. And we pitched to Michael and uh, producer writer Jerry Taylor and producer writer Brandon Braga. They liked one of our stories, and Michael asked for some some changes and some notes, and and we came back to him with with something else. And ultimately, we we ended up selling Prime Factors, which was was terribly exciting. And we ended up writing the story for it before we'd seen a frame of film. So that was kind of challenging. Because, you know, you're used to being, you know, we were familiar with all the next generation and Deep Space Nine and original series characters. And for Voyager, we had to base it on on the Bible, which delineates the characters and on the the first, you know, the pilot script. But we we did did all right, I think. And it was was an exciting process. I would have loved to have written the script, but that that wasn't in the cards. It's not entirely how the process works. We were very happy to sell that episode. And I think the thrust of that episode is about trust and about, well, about trust on a personal level and, and sort of on a more sort of societal level. Because this the, the episode deals with the notion that the Voyager crew needs something that another species won't give to them, essentially because they have their own version of the prime directive. So in this instance, the crew is sort of hoisted by their own petard or Picard. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, they, I mean, they can't. They 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 have the tables turned on them. They they need something, but they can't get it because the, the the people have a, a prime directive. And and in the in the end, Tuvok acts in contravention of Janeway's orders. And so it's a it's a a, a Starfleet betrayal, but also a personal betrayal because they're friends. And that, for me, was the really the whole reason to do the episode. I think for for Eric and I, that was the reason. Eric and me, that was the reason to do the whole episode. It was to 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 try and explore that a little bit. I wish that there had been repercussions from that that were felt l- later in the series, but I, I don't think there really were. But that was our our intention. But the, the episode came out pretty well, and I really that last scene where 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 Janeway talks to Tubak about having been betrayed by him is. For me, the the real, you know, that that was the money shot in in the in the episode. That was the the real reason to do the whole whole series, uh, the whole show, because really, I mean, Star Trek is about uh, characters at its at its core. From your original story that was um, sold to Voyager, how much of that was actually seen on screen? Because I remember David uh, Mack was telling us that with Starship Down, in the end, there was only about 10 lines of original dialogue, and most of them were like standard, like Red Alert, Raise the Shields, and, and things like that. What Was quite a lot of your original story kept in? Yeah, actually, quite a lot of it was, and I think this might not be the, this might not be true of, of uh, other episodes, I don't know, but I, I think one way you can tell that is that the story credit is just to Eric and me. It's not to the other the two writers who did the the screenplay or the teleplay, they're not credited with the story because they didn't make significant changes to it. So it, yeah, most of what we wrote is on there. Yeah, I, I, it's it's fundamentally our story. Did you pitch any more stories to Voyager or later on to Enterprise at all? I didn't pitch to uh, Enterprise, but pitched to Voyager just the one time, and it was three or four episodes, and we sold the one. And then Eric knew the actors on the various shows, and one of them, Armin Shimmerman, wanted to write, he, as opposed to direct. A lot of actors want to direct. Uh, Armin wanted to write. And in fact, he had already co-written a novel with, I think, C.J. Cherry, a science fiction writer. They had written a book called The Merchant Prince, which is terrific, by the way. And Armin wanted to write. So so he and Eric and I got together and came up with some stories for Deep Space Nine. And we pitched to the producers and they and actually, I think Eric and I actually pitched by ourselves once. And then Armin and Eric and I pitched and they, they didn't buy anything. And when we were walking out of the Hart building, which was where the Star Trek offices were on the Paramount lot, Armin says to Eric and me that, hey, we should write uh, we should write a novel. And I was like, yeah, sure. Right. Whatever. And I actually I wanted to write novels, but I hadn't really ever thought about writing a Star Trek novel, I guess. Eric wasn't much interested, but I, I called Simon and Schuster, talked to the Star Trek editor at the time, who was John Ordover. And I basically said, hey, how'd you like to have a novel written by one of the actors on the show? Thinking that this was going to be a draw for him. And John said, yeah, that'd be great. But you still have to go through the same process as everybody else. OK, and which is certainly fair. So what that entailed, what John asked us to do was to write a narrative outline of the novel that we wanted to write and and then to give him 40 or 50 pages of the novel, the first 40 or 50 page, first three or four chapters, whatever, whatever that was. And that was essentially because for a couple of reasons. One, no matter what you write, Simon & Schuster does not own Star Trek. CBS Consumer Products or CBS Studios owns Star Trek right now. 
Simon & Schuster licenses Star Trek the rights to, to publish Star Trek novels. And so anytime somebody's going to write a Star Trek novel or, a, or any Star Trek work, they have to produce a, a narrative outline that the publisher uh, authorizes, but also that CBS ha- has to say, yeah, yeah, this is okay. You can, you, can, you can write this. But on top of that, they wanted to make sure that we knew what we were doing, that we actually were going to come up with a decent story and that we actually had the ability to write. So Armin and I took a few weeks and writing a 42-minute television episode, which is, I think, what, the, the, you know, there were 18 minutes of commercials in an hour at the time. So I think, there were, you know, the 42-minute, it would have been a 42-minute episode that we had pitched. Writing a 42-minute episode and writing a 100,000-word novel, actually, that novel ended up being 135,000 words, very different. You need much more to fill out a novel than, than you do a, an hour of television. So... Armin and I, Eric wasn't interested in writing a novel, so Armin and I sat down and we made the story more complex. We, uh, not just for the sake of complexity, but we we gave it a, a greater reach. There were more themes that we wanted to talk about and explore. And so we did that and we wrote that together and I sent it to John Ordover at, at Pocket. And I remember that, you know, I just expected I, I wrote I sent it to him. And I said, you know, I'll, I'll we're, we're going to work on the, the chapters next and we'll send those to you when we have them. But about 15 minutes after I sent John the outline, he called me up and said, OK, we'll buy it. Well, what about the what about the, the chapters? He says, just from the outline, we know you can write. So that was positive. That was very positive. So they, they bought the novel and then Armin and I were going to write it together. And I had I had expected that i say he'd written a novel before so you know we anticipated that this was how we were going to do it i would write a chapter we had our outline so i was going to write the first chapter then i would give it to armin armin was going to make additions deletions make some changes and then we would take however many rounds of of editing it took to to get together and get get this first chapter done then we'd move on to the second chapter and I didn't used to tell the story, but Armin tells it, so so I, I I can tell it now. After I sent Armin the first chapter, he called me up and said, "This is really good. You don't you don't need me to make any changes." And so I ended up writing the novel. It was the thirty fourth rule, and uh, it featured Quark, but it wasn't uh, what I would call a, a typically Ferengi episode that they had on Deep Space Nine, which frequently were uh, sort of comic relief types of episodes. This was a very serious episode, and it was it was about racism. We actually used the American internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. I don't know if people in Britain are necessarily aware of this, but our our federal government during the the Second World War, not, not trusting people because Americans, because they were of Japanese extraction, rounded them up and put them in internment camps in the middle of the country, in the middle of nowhere. And it was a terribly immoral thing to do. And we used that sort of as as just a, a jumping off point to try and explore why that's wrong and, and how that impacts people. And we ended up using the Bajorans and the Ferengi, but that, that was our thematic basis for that novel. Anyway, so I ended up writing the novel. Armin did make, you know, a handful of changes in it, but mostly it was my novel. And then Armin's gone on to write other things. He actually co-wrote um, uh, some follow-ups to The Merchant Prince. And he's a good writer. Uh, but that sort of set me on my way with Star Trek. And then after we published The 34th Rule, since then, uh, Simon & Schuster's come back to me and said, do you want to write another Star Trek novel? And that's happened 12, 13 times. Now, my, my 13th Star Trek novel is going to be out in September, and I'm starting on my 14th right now. So, doing it a long time at this point. Warning. 
Spoiler alert. I repeat. Warning. Spoiler alert. While we're on DS9, you were part of the team that helped relaunch DS9 after the series ended and, and relaunched it in the novels. What was that like? And did you have free reign or there were you had certain restrictions on launching DS9 after the series had ended? Well, the person to ask about restrictions probably would be Marco Palmieri, mm-hmm. who, was the, who was the editor who was in charge of it. But I, I don't think that there, were, were, there was much in the way of restrictions. The show was off the air. The prospects for there being a film were slim. But even if there was going to be a film, it, it wouldn't even really matter. The people who were working, who were working in the licensing department at the time uh, over at I guess then it was Paramount or Viacom or whatever corporate entity it was, were, were very, as Paula Block was there, and she was very, very uh, excited about about continuing the show and about being true to the show, which meant, for one thing, a lot of change. Hallmark of Deep Space Nine was change, absolutely. I mean, Dr. Bashir is uh, a naif, uh, a, a young man fresh out of the academy who's who just wants to uh, to make his way in Starfleet. Oh, no, not. He's a super genius who's been genetically engineered. You know, I mean, the show had fundamental changes throughout its run, and that was great. And I think Marco did a terrific job in keeping that alive in the books, keeping that that uh, sort of feeling in the books. And, and also, at the end of the show, the characters had been scattered. There have been some readers I've seen who complained that the Deep Space Nine novels that follow from of, you know, after the show broke up the crew, but we didn't. The, the the last episodes did. Odo went back to the Dominion. Worf became an ambassador and left Deep Space Nine. The O'Briens went back to Earth. Cisco was gone, had ascended into the wormhole. I mean, so many characters had left the show that we didn't want to just, we could have just brought them all back, but that probably wouldn't have been very satisfying because it doesn't seem very realistic. And so, we, you know, Marco did a great job setting up the the some new character, brought new characters in, uh, and dealing with the the situation with the old the characters that remained. Found ways he and the writers, and then the editors that followed Marco, Margaret Clark and Schlesinger, found ways also to include characters like Miles O'Brien by doing short novel that was uh, had the O'Briens in it, but not at Deep Space Nine. He had them on Cardassia as part of the rebuilding effort, uh, Starfleet and the Federation helping Cardassia rebuild. So we were able to explore the characters even though they had left, and we explored the characters that remained, and we introduced new characters. And I think because those characters were continuing characters, it actually allowed readers to grow fond of them as well and want to read about those characters. So you asked me what it was like. It was, it, it was and continues to be very, very exciting. I love doing that. I am a fan myself of the Deep Space Nine television series, but I'm also a huge fan of the novels that continue the story. And and certainly not my, my novels, the, the, the other novels terrific novelists and just i'm i'm thrilled to be a part of that <laughs> and and i have to say i'm a i'm a big ro laren fan so i have to thank everyone concerned with bringing back deep space nine in the books for bringing ro laren back to well to the station and and especially now that she's captain of ds9 and spoiler uh, spoiler. I, I, I'm, I'm going to put a big spoiler alert at the beginning of the interview <laughs> but yeah it's it's brilliant and I, I you know that's brilliant so seeing her in the story and obviously we know that originally Roe was going to be the character on the series to begin with um, before Michelle Forbes turned down the role so it's really good that she's on the station now so I think that's quite nice 
I think it was Marco who decided to bring her back initially as the security chief, as the Bajoran militia security chief on the station to replace Odo. And I I thought that was a a brilliant idea. And, you know, the character has ended up, as you said, as captain of the station, which isn't really where anybody expected her to go. But the evolution of the character has been a lot of fun to watch and to write, certainly, and also to read. In fact, she's a big part of the last few novels that I've written, and I I love the character. I love the character of Roll Aaron, and uh, and yeah, it's been a lot of fun, and I'm excited as a reader that these books are going forward. I mean, I I hope that they continue to go forward. I'm always, you know, it's obviously there's a, a financial component to it that these books have to sell in order for Simon & Schuster to want to keep publishing them. If they're not making them any money, then why are you know why, why would they keep keep putting them out there? So hopefully the books you know the, the the next book that I have coming out in September and I'm sure you'll get to this. I'm sorry if I'm jumping the gun, but it's the first of a five book series. The five book sp- series is not a Deep Space Nine series. It, it's a kind of a global Star Trek universe kind of series. It, it it involves virtually all of the captains, not Janeway because she's out with Voyager in a way, but but virtually everybody else, and not just the captains, but the various ships. It's, it's the Aventine, it's the Enterprise, it's the Titan, it's the Robinson, it's Deep Space Nine, it's it, it's it, there's Earth. It's pretty global in nature. Mine it is a is it's got other characters, but it's essentially a Deep Space Nine novel, and it's sort of intended to help celebrate the 20th anniversary year of Deep Space Nine. It, it premiered 20 years ago this year, and I don't. Why did I start talking about this? Because I was talking about Roe. I guess yeah, I don't yeah. know. Well, I'm hoping that this book does very well, so that we can, you know, because it's a, it doesn't say Deep, Spy, Deep Space Nine on the cover, but it is essentially a Deep Space Nine novel. And I'm hoping it does well, so that Simon and Schuster will want to continue to publish Deep Space Nine novels going forward. Over the last couple of years, we've seen certain characters return to the books. We've seen Janeway return to Voyager after her um, death. We've seen Data come back, and also Ben Sisko has come back. Um, did you think? When it was time to bring, it was time to bring Ben Cisco back, and um, it was the right decision to do. Do you think DS9 needs Ben Cisco? Huh. I want to say yes, and I want to say no, because clearly Ben Cisco was a huge, huge part of. I mean, he was the the main focus of the, the television series. That said, there were quite a few novels and short stories that were written that followed up after the the. You know the so-called relaunch uh, works that followed up after the television series that didn't have Ben Cisco in them because Ben Cisco had gone. He was he had ascended. He didn't die, so he, we knew that he was still alive in some fashion in in the Celestial Temple, but he was gone. And so there were all sorts of stories that were told without Ben Cisco. And as far as I'm concerned, they all worked. They were terrific. So I would say that I would say no. I mean, you don't need him. You want him. Yeah, he's a great, great character to write and to read because he's complicated. He was complicated in the TV series and is complicated in the books. And he's he's complicated not just in who he is, but in what he's experienced. He's had a very strange life compared to his fellow citizens. You know, he's a great character. I don't think you have to have him, but I think you want to have him. I'm, you know, Kirsten did a fantastic job, Kirsten Beyer, with Janeway, and David Mack did a fantastic job, Data. Great, great, 
writers. Ben Cisco was a little bit different because he he really wasn't dead. We knew he wasn't dead. I thought that S.D. Perry did a spectacular job of bringing him back in Unity. It was just it was the right time. It was everything felt right. It was it was the birth of his daughter. It just made sense. Um, that said, I would when, when I kill characters, I like them to stay dead. I'm not saying that Janeway and Data shouldn't have come back. Those were terrific works, and and they they made it necessary for the characters to come back. They made it. It just was completely reasonable, and you know they were terrific. But I've ended up killing some characters here and there, and when I kill a character, I I want them to stay dead in general. It doesn't mean I wouldn't turn around and reverse that at some point. I want I want death to have meaning. As I say, I, I'm not Dave Dave Mack and, and Kirsten Byer did great jobs with what they did, and and it it was absolutely they, those were absolutely the right stories to tell. And, and there may be stories to tell where I want people I've killed I want to bring back, and I, I have good reason to, and I do. But you know, I actually have killed some canon characters too, which. But you know, you never want to kill a character just for the sake of killing you want to kill them because it has meaning for the story because it's it's really important and makes a point and and not it shouldn't be frivolous it absolutely shouldn't be frivolous you know ben ben cisco wasn't dead though when we know he wasn't no. dead. but i think yeah i mean do you need ben cisco i don't i yeah i mean on the one hand yes on the other hand no but I think no matter what, you want him. He's a great character. You know, he's not on Deep Space Nine anymore, and it hasn't been for quite some time. He hasn't. He actually hasn't been on Deep Space Nine since the television series, because he came when he he, he wasn't in the first however many novels until Unity in in the books, and then since Unity, he's essentially for the longest time been on Bajor. He didn't go back to command the station, and now he has returned to Starfleet, but he didn't return to Deep Space Nine. He returned to a, a starship command. That's right, the Robinson. Yeah. Moving, moving away slightly from DS9, but staying in the 24th century, you've also written um, three Typhon Pack novels. What is it about the Typhon Pack that you enjoy writing? Those three novels are very, very political, and that, that can be uh, challenging to write and fun to write. And uh, I, I don't always want to do that, but, but, but that, that, you know, there are, when you write politics... You, it's, it really lends itself to making statements about what's going on today on Earth, in America, and Britain, and the rest of the world, so uh, that that that's very fun to do. And I also got to 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 use different characters too that I, I very much enjoyed. I got to write Spock in Rough Beasts of Empire. Spock and Cisco were the two protagonists. It was kind of two stories in one, and one was Spock's story and one was Cisco's story. Although they did intersect sort of thematically, and also well in plot plot wise too but they were they were sort of separate separately told stories but those those are great characters Spock is a great character to write Cisco great character to write and I got to to work with the Romulans in that novel uh, at the time the Romulan Empire had been sundered into two parts there was something of a civil war going on and and that's just I mean what what more do you need for context to, to write an exciting novel and so and on top of that I got to introduce in some sense introduce the Zenkethi We'd heard about the Zenkethi in the Deep Space Nine television series. They were referenced a couple of times, but we knew absolutely nothing about them other than the Federation had fought more than one war against them. So I actually got to introduce what the Zenkethi look like, what their society is like, and that was tremendous fun. It's always, it can be very enjoyable to, to sort of world build or race build in this case, species build. 
And that, yeah, I enjoyed that a lot. And then the, the follow-ups, uh, the, the, you know, the Typhon Pact is such, I think it's a great idea because Federation is is obviously, you can sort of make an analogy, in, in, in exact though it is, you can make an, an analogy that it's NATO, right? That it's that got the North American Treaty Organization that, that binds a lot of America with a lot of Western European, and at this point, even Eastern European nations. The Federation is sort of that, you know, tying all of these worlds together for a common defense and other common purposes. And so naturally, there would be a, a Warsaw Pact counterpart and, and the Typhon Pact sort of fits the bill for that. And how exciting to have at least uh, historically adversarial powers joining together, not necessarily against the Federation, but certainly next to the Federation. And that can provide for a lot of tension. And of course, drama is nothing without conflict. So that that's a great thing to be able to to uh, a great setting in which to be able to, to come up with stories. And of course, within the Typhon Pact itself, you've got intrigue because you've got six disparate alien species that don't always have the same goals in mind and don't act in the same ways. And the, the Romulans can tend to be duplicitous. The Zenkethi, uh, we've learned, are awfully controlling and have a, you know an interesting society. David Mack did a great job exploring the Breen culture, which, though we saw lots of Breen in the television series, we never really knew what their society was like because all of them were covered. We never saw one one actually looked like. And Dave Mack did a fantastic job filling out that culture. And we still get to do that. We still get to explore these different different alien races. And, and by extension, of course, that lets us explore human nature and all of that. So Typhon Pact is just, it's its great. It's politics. It's its uh, different species. It's it just a, a very very textured setting for us in which to tell stories. You also wrote a short story uh, for the captain's table about Demora Sulu. And I was wondering, did you ask to write about Demora or was you assigned the project, first of all? Uh, I think, if I recall correctly, and I'm not guaranteeing that I do, but I think... Keith DeCandido, who edited that anthology, came to me and said, hey, how'd you like to write a Demora Sulu story? And I think the I'm pretty sure that happened. And I think the reason that that happened is because I wrote a novel called Serpents Among the Ruins, which was a, a so-called lost era novel, the lost era being the time between Jim Kirk's Enterprise and, and John Luke Picard's Enterprise. And so Serpents Among the Ruins took place in 2311. Captain Harriman was commanding the Enterprise, Enterprise B, and Demora Sulu was his first officer. We had seen her as as the helmsman in Generations, and she eventually, we posited that she became first officer. So uh, I had told, uh, and she was a, a major character in that novel, so I had told a Demora Sulu story, and uh, Keith came to me and said, hey, how'd you like to write a, a an entry in the captain's table and how'd you like to do Demora Sulu? And of course I, I jumped at it because I really like the character. And that's an example of I, I, trying to figure out what I want to write about. I, I, I remember very specifically when I was trying to cast about for a, a, a first person Demora Sulu story, I, I, I was with my wife and, and asked, you know, geez, what should I write about? And, and she said, well, why don't she was actually facing, my wife was facing losing her grandmother or, or perhaps she, she had just her she had just lost her grandmother with whom she was very close. And, and she sort of suggested that I write about that. And that was a great suggestion because it, it pretty quickly brought a story into focus for me. And I just expanded from there. And I, I didn't want to do something simple because 
I don't know. That's just not how I I work. So I ended up I ended up writing a story within a story within a story. So I had basically three stories in my one Demora Sulu story. So, but that and which was awfully fun. But it was a very personal story. It wasn't I wasn't exploring what it means to be human or how we treat each other or any of these great big themes. I was just really dealing with a, a smaller theme, which was which was familial love, which was the, the love of a, a granddaughter for her grandmother. Or in this case, actually, they were they weren't estranged, but the grandmother made it very difficult to have a, a decent relationship, and Demora didn't understand why. So anyway, it's a very very uh, personal story, and uh, I like that, and I'm very grateful to Keith for giving me the opportunity to 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 do that. Moving over now, I'd like to, if we can, focus on Allegiance in Exile, if that's okay with you. Sure, absolutely. Allegiance in Exile came out in January 2013. The synopsis. A beautiful green world, rich in fertile soil and temperate climate. A textbook class M planet that should be teeming with life. Scans show no life signs, but there are refined metals, including those associated with a spacefaring race and a lone city. But where are all the inhabitants? Captain James T. Kirk leads a landing party from the USS Enterprise, hoping to get some answers. The away team discovers a city in ruins, covered by dust, utterly bereft of life. Tricorder readings indicate that this is no ancient metropolis. It has been deserted only for a year, and just beyond the citadel lies what appears to be an ancient spaceport, a graveyard of ships that has clearly been sabotaged. With these ruins too far from either the Klingon or Romulan empires, the Enterprise crew can only wonder who could have done this, and could this unnamed threat now pose an imminent danger to the Federation? Can I ask, what was the concept behind the story? You know... It was interesting. I was asked to write uh, sort of in the 11th hour, I was asked to write an original series novel and I'm happy to do that. I love the original series. And I I started to think, what what is it I want to do? And and I sort of decided, as as we've talked about, I kind of write more complex stories. I, I kind of have very complicated plots. And I decided to, to do something a little simpler, and I wanted to do something a little more personal as well, just kind of, you know, not not great big, huge universal themes, but maybe more personal themes, smaller themes, which is not to say not important themes. So I started, actually started thinking about writing a, a, a Jim Kirk novel, and I kind of, I thought about if we think of the first three seasons of the original series as the first, second, and third years of the mission, and we think of the animated series as the fourth year, although that doesn't quite work, and I get all of that, uh, but if, you know, roughly, then we, then really the fifth season is kind of, you know, they, we, we've seen some of it in books. I've written some of that time period in books, but I thought, you know, what would it be like for Kirk that last year of, the, of, of his five-year command of Enterprise, because he knows it's ending and he doesn't know what's next. And we know what's next because we saw Star Trek, the motion picture and we read Gene Roddenberry's novelization. And, and then we saw the wrath of Khan. So we know some of what comes next. So I thought I tried to think about, well, if, if he is, is, was taken away from star, uh, starship command, which we all know from watching the original series and, and then the films, but even certainly just from the original series that it, Kirk absolutely wants to command Enterprise forever. That if that 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 was taken away from him at some point after the five year mission, then there might be hints about that beforehand, and Kirk might be having doubts and how is he going to deal with that? 
And so I really, that's where I started. I just wanted to try and figure out what Kirk was dealing with in that, in that last year. And, you know, people sometimes when they're faced with something they don't like, they, they kind of try and convince themselves that it is something that they like. I mean, that happens every day with people, uh, essentially trying to make the best of a bad situation, let's say. So I, I kind of, he kind of gave that to Kirk a little bit. He's worried that he's going to lose command, but then he starts thinking, well, no, maybe, you know, maybe it'll be good to to command a different starship. And then he thinks, well, maybe it'll be good to, to you know, be in Starfleet command or what have you. But from that, and this sort of came to me unexpectedly, I started developing a, a, a to Sulu story, a, a, a Hikaru Sulu story. When I started out, it was just a Kirk story, but very quickly it became a Sulu story. And I decided... Uh, I don't know, somewhere along the way, I just made that a personal story, too. And I wanted to, to talk about and deal with what happens when you fall in love and somebody is has a, a, an absolutely life-altering, if not life-threatening, injury. I mean, that changes the dynamic dramatically. And I don't know that we've seen that much explored in Star Trek. So I thought I, I would do that. And that, that story sort of just took a, a lot on a life of its own and really kind of became the focus in the novel. And so I also had to deal with the fact that we know Sulu also becomes captain of the Excelsior. He, so he becomes a Starfleet captain. Well, okay, how does that come about? How, where, where does that, you know, is there anything I can add to that story to that fact that we know that he becomes a captain. Is there anything I can add any layers of interesting layers onto that? So, you know, I, I kind of did in him dealing with the way Kirk commands and what he does and not really understanding the responsibility without actually having the responsibility. And, you know, so that that's kind of just all developed very sort of organically. I use some of what we knew was going to happen in Jim Kirk's life and in, in, in Hikaru Sulu's life in the novel. I, I, I sort of foreshadowed it. And I, I don't know how effective it was. I hope it was effective, but it, it, it may have been more effective if I had been able to write this before I knew any of this stuff, before we'd seen Star Trek The Motion Picture, before uh, we saw that, saw that Sulu got his own command. But I, I wanted to try and bridge that gap. I wanted to make that link and say, well, hey, here's some of the things that might have happened that got us from the original series to the films and, and, and the circumstances that took place there. And so I use characters that, you know, I use a character of, of Laurie Chiana, the admiral, that sort of helped coerce Kirk into taking a Starfleet command job as chief of operations. And so I think in some ways this this Allegiance in Exile is, is more Star Trek-y, if you will, than a lot of my other novels because it, the readers will benefit, I think, will get more out of it if they have some of that knowledge of Star Trek, uh, of you know, Star Trek the Motion Picture and of Sulu becoming captain and all of that. But I hope it stands on its own, too. But I, I think there are layers that benefit from 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 knowing more about the show. I have to say, first of all, um, that I really enjoyed the story. I, I only finished the um, book last weekend and, and I thought it was really good. I actually have to say that I thought that did work because there's a nod to Enterprise near the beginning where it says that the um, Vulcans had actually charted the system in question and you actually hear Kirk's thoughts over the Vulcan high command and I thought that was really really nice and and I thought that was that was a nice nod to Enterprise but also um, we actually have a nice nod to the animated series as well where we, yeah. we which which was brilliant I'm on another show at the moment um, called the holodeck and we're actually reviewing the animated series episode by episode 
and we're actually going to be doing one of our planets are missing soon so oh. it was really nice and it was a nice coincidence that i was actually prepping for that episode and reading this story at the same time so it was nice to see a follow-up to that and find out what did happen to bob wesley uh, you may have gotten more out of that out of my book than anybody else then since you were right there in the middle of that episode yeah. you know i it's it's a bit dicey to deal with the animated series because you know it was it was a, it was a here in america it was a saturday morning cartoon it was not it wasn't exactly a kid's show, but it wasn't exactly an adult show either. I mean, it, you can't have an episode called Jihad and think it was made for kids, you know, <laughs> entirely. But, you know, there's a level of complexity that's missing. They're much shorter than than the hour-long, you know, live-action shows. Uh, uh, but it's still, I don't know, I think a lot of Star Trek writers and certainly fans and readers just have a, a soft spot for it and just want to include it as best we can, you know. So that was fun to do. No, that, that was really good. And, and I did enjoy that. And and also I like the fact that we find out why Wesley is at, why he was on Mantilles at the time and, and the fact that he was sent there by command. And and again, he, he's, he's quite bitter in the way he's been treated by command. And again, that that plays on Kirk's mind, doesn't it, in the choices that sure. he has lying ahead of him. And I thought that was that was really good. He's bitter and he's not. I mean, he, 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 he seems... As I maybe I'm misremembering, but I think he, Wesley was initially bitter, but he's sort of gotten over it because this is the job, and I think that influences Kirk yeah. um, to to maybe help get him over his his. He's not bitter at first, but he's concerned about where he's going to. Kirk is where he's going to end up. Yeah, I think as well. Wesley is happy again because he's back in the command of a starship, and that's right. where where he wants to be, isn't it? I think. Right. Of course. Yeah. yeah. But also another nod that I really liked, and, and you've mentioned her already, is Admiral um, Chiani, because she was first mentioned in Gene Roddenberry's novel of Star Trek The Motion Picture. And as we know, she dies in the transporter accident within the film. And also she would become one of the main characters in the Lost Years saga, the set of novels as well. And I thought that was really good how you've brought in not only what Gene had written, not only what was in the film, but also what was it in the books too at the time connected with um kirk's decision to join the admiralty you know she, she plays a, a role in i wrote a, a original series trilogy to help celebrate the 40th anniversary of the original series and she played a, a part in there too because you know she was that's what we have from that era is is not just the movie but gene roddenberry's novelization so yeah i wanted to 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 use that, uh, what we knew from there. And, you know, Lori Chiana, the Admiral, is she's not entirely a sympathetic character. And I, I wanted to make her a little bit more sympathetic, but in Gene Roddenberry's novelization, she sort of uses Kirk for her own professional gains, and you know, she's not... She's not explored a lot in, in Gene Roddenberry's novelization, as I recall it, but um, I don't think she leaves a good taste in your mouth. But I wanted, you know, I wanted to there are always two sides or more sides to everything. And I, I wanted to soften her a little bit, but also see how we, it wasn't just her manipulating Kirk. It was Kirk manipulating himself. If this is going to happen, if this is the circumstance I'm going to be faced with, I can either be bitter about it. I can reject it, or I can go with it and try and make the most of it. And these are, these are decisions that human beings make every day right now. It's nothing futuristic about that. So I wanted to try and get into that sort of mindset and, and explore that a little bit. 
but and she was a she was a, a, the admiral was a a a fun way to do that. But I, as I said, I think it also helps people if they know who she is. I, I don't think it it doesn't work if you don't know, but I think it, it's even better if you do. When you was actually prepping for the book, did you actually go back and and read um, Gene's book, his his ad- adaptation of the motion picture, or did you just use what you wanted to use and and from obviously that was from the crucible wasn't it you were talking about the TOS yeah, from the crucible yeah. and um or did you just focus on what you wanted for the, for her character well I, I went back and read Jean Ronvery's novelization and I actually had to read parts of my crucible trilogy because I wanted to remain consistent with myself when I wrote the the crucible trilogy I, I faced a, a kind of a daunting task because I I, I was asked to write this trilogy and help celebrate the 40th anniversary of the show. But I realized, you know, we got 79 original hours of Star Trek, and then we got the feature film, seven feature films, and then we have hundreds and hundreds of novels. I hadn't read all of the novels. I'd read plenty of them, but I hadn't read all of them. And even the ones I read, I didn't remember all of them. So, and the novels are inconsistent, not only amongst themselves, but sometimes with the show. And even the things that were revealed in Next Generation and Deep Space Nine sometimes contradicted what what happened in the in the Star Trek original series novels. So I, I, I wrote, I talked to my editor at the time about this, and and they said you just make sure that your three your Crucible novels are all consistent with canon, with the with the television series and with the movies. And I also, for my own sake, threw in the animated series. But I also wanted to be consistent with anything that I had written as well. So I tried to, you know, even Allegis and Exile came after that. But when I when I was writing it, I didn't want to contradict myself. And I had the essentially what was the last, not quite mission, but last experience of the Enterprise crew before or very near it before the end of the five year mission in the Crucible novels. And so. I actually wanted to leave enough time in Allegiance and Exile for all of that to happen. So I tried to remain consistent with myself, at least, so with not my novels wouldn't contradict each other. What was it like? Um, you mentioned you actually went back and, and read some some of the Crucible. What was it like going back after um, a certain amount of time and oh, looking back at your own work? It's terrible. It's horrible. <laughs> I don't recommend it. I don't pretty much don't go back and read what I wrote. When, I, when I'm writing a novel, obviously I'm reading it as I'm writing it. But then once a novel is done, oftentimes before I turn it in, I'll, I'll give it another, I'll just give it a straight read through. Once that happens, my editor will read the novel and then he or she and I, these days it's she and Margaret Clark, will we'll go over the novel together. She'll give me notes. We'll discuss them. Um, you know, I, Mostly she has great ideas and, and, and the notes that she gives me, I absolutely want to make because they improve the novel. So, but in the course of that, you start a, sort of a reading it again. And then that goes to the copy editor and, uh, you know, weeks or a month later, you get the novel back and the copy editor has made changes, punctuation, grammar, inconsistencies, what have you. And you have to read the novel again. And reject those changes, accept those changes, make changes that I want to make myself. And then that gets turned back in. And then a month or two later, you get what are called first pass pages, which are actually the the printed pages of the novel uh, as they would look that the paperback 
printed pages, but they're on eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper, but they're actually what the novel would look like. It's been typeset. This is what's going to get published. And so you have to read it again. And then you get second pass pages and you have to read it again. So, you know what? I've read my books enough. Yeah. Uh, it's just, it's, it's, it's just tiring. And when you go back, you know, sometimes I do have to go back and read things because like for Leeches in Exile, I wanted to remain consistent with Crucible. So I had to go back and read those scenes of, of that last mission and the five-year mission. I, oh, I don't know if other writers are like this, but I know some actors are like this, right? They never watch themselves on screen. Uh, it's just, I, I go back and all I see are the, the, the mistakes. Oh, why did I do this? Why did I do that? I should have done this. This is the wrong word. Oh, so yeah, I don't enjoy going back and rereading my stuff. It's, it's tough. Also, what I liked about the story was the fact that not everybody was happy with the way um, Kirk had commanded the Enterprise in terms of the fight during his five year mission. And you actually reference like things like a private little war. Did you think it was important for us to see this as well? The fact that not everyone was pleased with Kirk and some of his decisions were questionable after what we'd seen in the series. Absolutely. And I think it's a really important part of Jim Kirk himself. One of the reasons I think Kirk is a great character and some of his great moments are because he makes mistakes. Now, it doesn't happen often. He's the hero of the show, uh, along with Spock and McCoy. And, and, you know, mostly he does the right thing. But it's great when he makes mistakes, too, because it, it makes the character more realistic, more vulnerable. A Private Little War is a great example. Kirk himself seems to be really unhappy with the, the choice that he makes there. And then I think, and actually, while there are people who aren't happy with Kirk in the novel, Allegiance in Exile, when, when he thinks about a private little war, it's Kirk himself who's not happy with himself. Um, he's not happy with that decision, which, which I think is borne out by watching the episode. If you watch Errand of Mercy, where we first see the Klingons, and they're down on Organia, and Kirk is with Kur, and they're, and they're arguing with the Organian, saying, we have, you know, Kirk says, we have the right, and he's going to say, to wage war. I mean, and, and the Organian system, to wage war, to kill millions of innocent women and children. I mean, it's crazy. Kirk realizes that, oh, okay, wait, maybe this is for the best. I, you know, I'm, I'm in a bad place. I, I'm, I'm actually fighting for the right to wage war. What am I doing? So I think that really makes him a much more interesting character. And so, yeah, I was happy to explore that. And then you think about, in this case, Sulu was not particularly happy with the decision he made. And, you know, McCoy is always the sort of conscience, everybody's conscience. And sometimes he's right. And sometimes he's wrong. And McCoy says, basically says to him, hey, you really want to do this? This is going to be too dangerous. And Kirk says, yeah, it's not going to be too dangerous. Don't worry about it. I take care of my crew. And then something happens. And Sulu's really upset because Kirk was told this is going to be too dangerous. And it turned out to be too dangerous. And he did it anyway. And Sulu was impacted by this. So, yes, he's 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 naturally upset about it. Why wouldn't he be? It's something very personal to him that happens. And, you know, people are human and they react to, to circumstances. So. And I, I wanted all of that to play in also to Sulu's experience in wanting to become and understanding what it takes to become a starship captain. Yeah, I think all of that is fascinating to me. That's one of the reasons I love Kirk. He's just not this perfect hero. He makes mistakes. Sometimes I think he makes mistakes and it's just me thinking he makes mistakes because what he's done is different than my personal view. But there are times in the episodes, like I said, where he himself realizes, yeah, this wasn't the best course of action. I screwed up. I have to say, you were talking about Sulu there, and the scene in the turbo lift where he does confront Kirk with after the decision Kirk's made and the fact that 
Ensign Tring is um, injured quite critically. I thought that was really powerful. And I actually enjoyed reading about his time on the Courageous as well, because Sul actually shuts himself away. And he starts to actually see Kirk in him, inside himself. I thought that was really good too. And again, this is all lessons he had to learn ready for his own command. Did, did you enjoy writing those parts of the story too? Absolutely. Absolutely. I love these characters. And so it is, as we said earlier, uh, you know, it's a privilege to be able to write them. It's uh, it's a you know, dream come true. I, I grew up with these characters. I, I love them. And the thing about Sulu is that when he in the original series, in those original 79 episodes, Sulu and Chekhov and Uhura, in some sense, they're just background. They're just setting. They're just they, they don't. Sulu has some lines and Scotty has some lines and, and some stories here and there, but mostly it's Kirk, Spock and McCoy because television back in the sixties for the most part was not an ensemble project. It was here are the stars of your show and these are the people we're going to be seeing. And so Sulu was not fleshed out in the, in the original series. He's become more so in the films, but he's really explored extraordinarily in the in the novels and that's actually a challenge in itself because since Sulu was not explored in Uhura and these characters were not really explored in the original series when you start exploring them in the novels you might be going against what people have assumed they're like because when people when characters aren't fleshed out on screen people tend to do it who watch tend to do it themselves they tend to imagine this is what Sulu's like. This is what Uhura is like. Th these are their life experiences, even though they haven't seen that. This is, you know, they make judgments about it. And then now you're reading novels about characters who haven't been fleshed out and they're being fleshed out in the novels. And it might contradict what they wanted to be true for Sulu and Uhura and the others. So, you know, that pre presents a challenge in itself. What helped me is that I knew where Sulu was going. I knew he was destined for Starship Command because we've seen that. So that helped me. And then I just had to figure out, okay, how does he get there and what helps him get there and and is interesting would be interesting for the readers to read. I also thought it was really interesting that um, we didn't actually find out the name of the people who were settling on the planet and all those that were attacking them till the end of the story. Was that just um, deliberate because you just wanted to keep the suspense going? And, and we do actually find out that it's actually the Bajorans. Why, why did you decide to bring in the, in the Bajorans? And was this your original idea or was this something that was decided editorially? It was my original idea. And I, I have a regret about, about, my my revelation. I have no regrets about revealing Bajorans, about using the Bajorans. Mm. I, I just, it occurred to me that we hadn't seen first contact with the Bajorans, didn't know anything about it. And I researched that to make sure it was true. So I was like, ah, this is a great, this would be great because not only am I, I, I looking back to Enterprise for a little bit, but now I'm also looking forward. I, I have a regret about revealing their attackers, revealing the name, because I didn't need to reveal the name because it was obvious who they were if you've been reading the novels. And it, whether you were reading them or not, it didn't really, it didn't matter if I, it would have been more powerful, I think, if I didn't mention who they were, but I did. You know, in, these, in, the, in the Deep Space Nine series of novels that have come out since the show, there was a one we 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 set up and and pay off various storylines throughout different books 
and some some storylines last part of a book, some of them last two books, some of them last ten books. There was a, a storyline we set up with a, a particular alien race, and and then we were in the year twenty three seventy seven. And then all of a sudden, the next book was in 2381. So we skipped four years of time in the books. And so the storyline, we could have either paid it off and just, you know, said what happened, or we could ignore it, or we could say that it's still ongoing. None of those seemed like very satisfactory answers to me. And I was the one who had, had been charged with skipping the four years. So I, 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 I let the readers know that that storyline had been paid off in the intervening four years that we didn't see, hinted about what might have happened in the hopes that eventually we would see that storyline. In, in Allegiance and Exile, this is an attempt to layer on there that on that story, although it certainly doesn't, doesn't satisfy, it doesn't tell you what happened during that 2377 to 2381 time frame. It's it certainly adds a layer onto that story, and and that's something that I I, I saw an opportunity to do, and so I I did it. Well, I, I have to say that Cena, my my co-host, and I were reading at the same time, and I actually tweeted her to say it's the Bajorans, and my and I just put jaw drops, and I was just like, wow, this makes so much sense, and. It was it was really enjoyable, so I thought that was brilliant. And as you say, we hadn't seen the Federation make first contact with the Bajorans, so that was really interesting to see. I'm, I'm thank you for saying so. I'm I'm delighted to hear. Jaw drops is a really good reaction to something you've written, as long as, as long as it's not jaw drops in anger or you know in complete frustration. But jaw drops is that's great to hear. Um, that that's what I was going for, you know. I I, I want to write a book that I'd be happy to read. If I didn't have to judge my own writing all the time. But, you know, I want to tell a story that interests me and that I think will interest the reader. So I'm delighted to hear that it did. Um, would you, going, going off slightly um, off topic, would you like to see more of those early stories of contact between the Federation and the Bajorans? Do you think that's something that would the readers uh, would like to see? You know, I don't know. Um, you know, it really, it just depends on the story. It depends on what you come up with. If somebody comes up with a great story it doesn't matter at all where it's set or who's in it. You know, uh, you find the right setting, you find the right characters and you tell the, the great story. You got to find the great story first. So yeah, if, if somebody could tell a great story in that setting, I'd love to read it. If not, then I'll read other things. So, um, you know, it's certainly, it's certainly, it's Star Trek universe is very, a very detailed, large arena in which to be able to, to come up with stories. And, I enjoy doing that. I enjoy reading others that who do that. You know, some very, very good writers working in, in Star Trek these days. Kirsten Byers doing a great job with Voyager and, and David Mack's Destiny trilogy was, was brilliant and his Cold Equations trilogy. He's just such a good writer. And, and there are others as well, just, just really good writers. So it's really fun to be able to, to read that stuff. You've already mentioned that if you could have, you wouldn't have written about who was the actually attacking the Bajoran settlement settlements would you have changed anything else in the story looking back now or do you try not to think about that because it would just do your head in if you started going down that path I think it would probably do me in and actually I don't think I've ever had any real regrets uh, about things that I've written and, and that was the first one believe it or not that my, in my 12th novel I thought ah oh, geez you know and, and it's such a simple thing it's not like 
I didn't want people to know who the attackers were. I did. I absolutely did. And that's why I ended up naming them just once. But then I thought, you know, I, I, I really didn't need to do that. I, I People would have known. They would have known. And and the, the thing is, the identity of the attackers is completely unimportant to the characters. It means nothing to the characters because the characters don't know who they are other than the, that they are these these attackers. I mean, Kirk's people don't know it. The Bajorans don't know it. And learning their name or the, the way they reference themselves doesn't add anything for them. So what I'm doing is I'm just, I put it out there for the reader. And that makes it, to my ear, read a little false. The dialogue just doesn't quite work. And, and I just... I, I, I screwed up. I should have I should have realized uh, and I didn't until after the fact uh, until after the book was published. And, and and I don't know. It's not like I reread the novel. It just occurred to me, geez, yeah, I didn't need to do that. So and that's the first time that's ever really happened. It's not like I haven't made mistakes in other novels. I'm not saying that. But this is the first thing that's really come back to me. And I just thought ah, I didn't need to do that. But I also don't think it's a horrible thing either. And maybe for some readers, it would have been too subtle not to say who it was. But it seemed to me that, that it was fairly obvious. No, I, I really enjoyed it, how, how it was. But it, it was really good. Really, really nice story. And as I say, um, it was so good to see all those links and, and nods to other episodes, um, other incarnations of Star Trek. And also just to see more about Kirk's decision about joining the Admiralty. I, I've always been interested in that. So that was a really nice read, to be honest. It's really interesting to to explore characters in very human ways and very realistic ways like i say you know if people are faced with kind of a bad choice a lot of times they just try and make the best of it and so i I don't know i just wanted to see kirk's reaction to all of this and it you know it's just always fun to explore the characters and you know in big ways and in small ways you say you can tell these great stories about about dramatic mankind altering themes and you can tell little tiny stories about okay how did sulu come to think he might want to command and what what that responsibility is like a much smaller story there are lots lots and lots of tales to tell out there in lots of different ways and i'm grateful for that i'm grateful to have the privilege of being able to write in this universe and, and i'm grateful that people are still putting quality work out for me to read myself uh, you know like i say there's some great writers like you know Dayton Ward and James Swallow and these folks who are writing just a a pleasure to read I was going to say also what we would be nice to see is um, someone write a definitive novel um, if there is such a thing about Kirk's decision to go back to the Admiralty after his second five-year mission in between uh, the motion picture and the Wrath of Khan because obviously he makes the same mistakes again and goes back to the Admiralty I've actually, you're right, and I've actually had some ideas about that myself. I have no idea whether I'm ever going to get to write it, and I, I, it's not at the top of my list, but I have actually thought about that because it's very interesting how that really does those sort of take place. Because uh, Kirk is a clever man, and he's not the sort of person you would expect to make the same mistake twice. He's a clever man, but he's also, he's also, he's an emotional man and a romantic man, and you know, I, I remember in the naked time when he's under the influence of the Psi 2000 virus, and he's so he's 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 lamenting how how much the Enterprise demands of him, being its captain, how how much it's how hard it is on him because he has to kind of be a loner a little bit. He, you know, he, he can't. You know, he's he's got all of this the weight of responsibility on him, the weight of 400 plus lives, 
and yet when he comes out of that, it's like, you know, I'll never, you know, I'll never lose you. He always wants enterprise to be on enterprise. So when he's faced with not being on enterprise, what does he do? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, he's a clever man. Should he make the same mistake twice? Well, I would suggest that if it was a mistake that didn't involve his emotions. Yeah, no, absolutely not. If, if it was some sort of tactic in battle. Yeah, Kirk's not going to make the same mistake twice. But emotionally, you know. I don't necessarily think he made the same mistake twice because I don't think the circumstances would have been exactly the same. I think they would have been different, but I think Kirk is is busy talking himself into things as well, too. Like I said, you, when you're faced with bad bad choices, what you think are bad choices, you try and make the most of them, too. So there are any number of ways that Kirk could have made the same mistake but made it in a different way, you know, that, that wouldn't say – it was really the same mistake. The end result was the same, but I, I don't know. Yeah, Kirk's, Kirk's a, a, I wouldn't say he's fragile emotionally, but he is sensitive, I think. I mean, I love that scene in Balance of Terror when, when they, we see the Romulans for the first time and, and he's trying to decide whether or not to violate the neutral zone to try and prevent a war, but he's worried about what if I make the wrong mistake and it really leads to war and it leads to, you know, to, to bad things for the Federation. And he's very, very vulnerable in that time. He's talking to McCoy and Kirk is talking, is in his, ca his own cabin and he's talking to McCoy and he's saying, you know, what if I'm wrong? I love that scene mm -hmm. because it does, if you don't know what's going on, if you don't know what's at stake, if you don't feel the weight of responsibility, then there's no courage. You're just an idiot. But if you realize what's at stake, if you realize the burden, tremendous weight of what it is that you have to decide and you make that decision, that's the courageous thing to do. It's it's not 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 feeling afraid. It's feeling afraid and taking action anyway. No, exactly. And, and I'd love to love to see that one day. Um, moving away from allegiance in, in exile, can we talk about the fall and which is starting in the fall and your first Book, which is the first story of the series, Revelation and Dust. Can you tell us about that? And also, how, how does it feel to kick the series off, the series of five novels? Well, that's always fun to do. I, I, I've, you know, I'm, I'm working with uh, Ed Schlesinger and Margaret Clark, mostly Margaret, uh, with this and uh, the editors, and they they came up with they wanted to put together a. A grand Star Trek universe crossover kind of event, um, and in, in the 24th century, and really bring together all of these characters and starships and and space stations, the settings, and all of this. And they, Margaret, had a, a, an initial notion of how to do that, and together she um, came to five different writers. I was one of them to talk about what we should do. Uh, if we would, if we were interested, and and when we all jumped on board, we all worked with Margaret and with each other to figure out the overall story that would take place in the fall, which is a five book series. And the first one comes out in September, and they run m monthly through through January. We, so we figured out what our individual stories were, and we also we all wanted to write what are essentially, in some regards, standalone novels. They're not entirely standalone, but they all have a beginning, a middle, and an end. You know, they all tell one story. Now, if you read all five of them, they tell a much bigger story as well. So we all work together to try and 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 get all of that together and remain consistent with each other and 
I'm just was I'm very happy to have been invited to participate at all, especially with such terrific writers. Uh, the, the other four writers who I've already mentioned, uh, Una McCormack and uh, James Swallow, David Mack, James Swallow and Dayton Ward. That's in order of, of the novels that they're writing. They're all terrific people, terrific writers. And just it's a privilege, an honor to be uh, among their number. And uh, writing the first one is always positive thing, a great thing, because if you do a little thought experiment, the first novel is always going to sell the most. The first novel of a series is always going to sell the most copies because nobody who doesn't read the first one is going to pick up the second one or the third one or the fourth one or the fifth one for the most part. You know, pretty much everybody's going to read if they're going to read the series, they're going to start with the first one. So there's always that there's that financial benefit. But short of that, it's absolutely great to be helping kick it off. I mean, I actually have I had double duty here because I had to kick off the series, which means I had to set things up for the other writers, which I was happy to do. Uh, but I also had to serve the Deep Space Nine story because this is, again, intended to be something of a celebration of the 20th year anniversary of Deep Space Nine. And there is a brand new Deep Space Nine, so that's a big deal. So the, the introduction of the station and trying to celebrate the old station and the old and the series, it was exciting. It was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it, and I'm really happy with the story that I the, with the fall portion of the story that I told, and I'm really happy with the Deep Space Nine story that I told. And I think people will be. Ex- I hope that people will be excited where the Deep Space Nine story ends up. And with the um, fall itself and also your novel, if you're behind on on any of the stories, can you pick this up and jump straight in and know exactly what's going on? Sure, absolutely. I think that's true of virtually, maybe not all, but virtually all of of the Star Trek novels. I said earlier, the writers are very diligent about not alienating readers. We don't want somebody to pick up a novel and feel left out, feel like, oh, geez, I, I don't understand what's going on because I didn't read this other novel or these three other novels or whatever. So if there's any information from previously, then we try to include that in our, our we include that in our novels. We don't we, we, we tell you what you need to know. We, we, you know, this is supposed to be a positive experience. We don't want people thinking they've missed something. So, yeah, you can absolutely jump right into my novel. And you might be surprised at some of the things that have taken place, but you'll know what's taken place. Even if you you didn't read it, you'll know that it's taken place and you'll you'll get that. So I hope people will jump on. Yesterday on Star Trek.com, that's Friday the twenty fourth of May, an interview with yourself was published and we also got to see a cover of your new book, Revelation and Dust, and we actually get to see the new DS nine. Was it really nice to actually see the station um oh, it's fantastic it's f- absolutely I, I i'm thrilled i could not be more thrilled i think i said this in the star trek.com interview but i i went i wanted to see the new d space nine i mean i had it in my head and i wanted to see it and i thought it should adorn the cover of the novel just because i want that doesn't mean that that's going to happen because that costs money you have to hire an artist and i wrote a rudimentary very basic description of what the new station looked like at the end of Raise the Dawn, but in Revelation and Dust, we're actually aboard. The thing's actually online and functional now, so I needed to actually uh, give all the details of what it looked like and what was inside. Not Maybe not all the details, because I'm sure other writers will come up with other things, but I had to really 
provide the setting, the, the new setting. So my editors were, Ed Schlesinger was great. He, he agreed to go to an artist, to have an artist do the cover. And that was Doug Drexler, who's an Academy Award winner, an Emmy Award winner, and a longtime involvement with Trek. And he actually went to Andrew J. Probert and Douglas E. Graves to get them to work on the digital model. I, I mostly work with, with Doug Drexler, but I, I would forward him uh, you know, my descriptions of the station. So we knew what I was describing in, in, in the, uh, in the book itself. And he and I would go back and forth and sometimes, uh, Andy would have some suggestions or, or Doug and we, you know, we would, you know, it was a give and take cause they have their own artistic visions as well. So we put the together, we sort of designed the station together, I guess. I mean, the, the basic design came from me, but the the visuals of it came from them and we we went back and forth and said oh yes this not this and it, it came out great and it was a very collaborative effort that resulted in i think a, a, just a beautiful design for the station and i, I love the cover i think it's fantastic and it's very exciting because i i didn't have any reason to expect that this would actually happen but it did so i couldn't be couldn't be more pleased what else can you tell us about your particular story and have you actually read Una's, um, David's, and James's and Dayton's um, stories yet? I haven't read Dayton's because I don't think Dayton's done yet. But uh, I did read Una's. Very, very good. Una's a terrific writer. They're all terrific writers. I'm, I'm. It's how wonderful to be included in that lineup. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I hope I'm not the weak link. You know, uh, but yeah, Una. I read Una's book. It's terrific. Uh, I read uh, Dave Mack's book. Also terrific, and uh, Una's book tells her 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 slice of the fall series, but it also sets up so much more. And the same is true of Dave Max. He tells his slice of the of the fall series, but there's just so much more to it than that. And it just leaves you with, geez, what's going to happen next? And then I I just a couple of days ago finished James Swallow's book. Uh, Una's is called uh, Don't Tell Me, uh, The Crimson Shadow. And David Max is A Ceremony of Losses. And I just finished James Swallow's book, which is called The Poison Chalice. And just fantastic. And just really starts the, the book, it starts the entire series careering toward, you know, a spectacular conclusion. Um, and just, you know, but it tells a story in and of itself, too. And it's just it's just great stuff and really, really fine writers. So, yeah, I, I've gotten to read their books and I'm, I love them. They're great. <laughs> Oh, brilliant. And as you say, your one comes out um, the end of August, beginning of September, isn't it? It's a September book, which means it'll probably be out the last week and a half of August. Yeah. Not long to go, really. And uh, we're all looking forward to that, especially on um, our show, because we're going to be reviewing each book um, as it comes out. So we can't wait for that. Well, I, I certainly hope it satisfies. It's It serves as a re, it serves as an introduction to the, the fall series. And it's, it also serves as an introduction to the new station. And at the same time, I think I, I've tried to help celebrate 20 years of Deep Space Nine in a way, maybe a, maybe a subtle way. I hope not too subtle, but it, it's um, I, I, I'm, I'm excited for it to come out. I'm, I hope certainly hope readers like it, obviously. But the new station is uh, I mean, we're basically in the in the novel. We're basically at the point where the station is about to open for business. When we last saw it, which was a short scene at the end of Raise the Dawn, which is a year 
before when Revelation and Dust starts, the, the, the station has started to be partially active and, and a crew gets on, goes on board to, to try and start, you know, getting it together. But now Revelation and Dust really starts with Deep Space Nine becoming fully operational. And we're going to see a celebration of that fact that, that we've got a replacement for the for the original Deep Space Nine, Tarek Noor, that there's the president of the Federation really sees a an opportunity here in such a momentous occasion to continue reaching out to members of the Typhon Pact as she has in the past. She's had some really interesting dealings with the Romulan Praetor and uh, the Gorn Imperator, and uh, you know she's she's reached out to them in friendship, and and uh, she sees an opportunity to do that here, and so that sort of starts events in motion and. Uh, I hope readers like it. I think it's an exciting series. And it, to say it spans all of the 24th century Star Trek for the most part. And that includes the, the, the television series, but also the literary works as well. We've got Captain Dax aboard Aventine and Picard aboard the Enterprise and Riker aboard the Titan. Cisco's aboard the Robinson. We've got Ro Laren captaining Deep Space Nine. And we go back to Earth. It's just there's a lot of stuff going on. You know, we've got the Federation president. We've got the, the commander in chief Starfleet. And it's a, just a big, long, rollicking tale that ties that all together. I was actually going to say, you've mentioned Kirsten a couple of times now. And I was going to ask, has there ever ever been any thoughts of trying to, on the next series, uh, all the novels come together, of bringing Voy the Voyager story into this? Or do you think because Voyager's so... You know, it's got its own story at the moment and it's back in the Delta Quadrant that it would be difficult to bring that into a, a series. Well, um, you know, we didn't talk about bringing Kirsten in right now uh, and Voyager in right now uh, because I mean, it was an editorial decision. I think because of what Kirsten's working on right now, it just didn't didn't really fit. But I'm sure if it had, then that would have been a choice that they that the editor would have made. Um, I, I just think she's she's got something else going on right now. It may look to the readers like we plot this stuff out well in advance. And in regards to how long it takes to publish, that's true. I mean, I'm starting on a book that will be out, you know, next year sometime. So that's, you know, there's a long lead time between coming up with an outline, actually writing the novel, going through all the iterations of what it takes to to uh, get it into print and then publish it and ship it and all of that. So, yeah, we're ahead of the readers, but we're not ahead of ourselves. I mean, we just... We've been working on the fall for, I don't know, the better part of a year, um, and we're starting to turn towards what's next. We're not going to say, oh, Kirsten's going to be included or Voyager's going to be included or not included yet because we don't know. You know, we have to wait to see what's going on. You know, it just it just depends on circumstances is what I'm saying. As you say, you're, you're beginning your new novel now. So are you, you're at the outline stage at the moment for that. I, yes. The next novel I write is not Deep Space Nine. It's not... It's not Next Generation or Voyager. It's, I'm, I'm returning to a captain. What I can say is I'm returning to a captain I've written before that I'm very excited about returning to. I can't really say more than that at this point. But it's also, I, I'm also, I think, um, we've written a lot. I've written a lot of political stuff lately. And I think we're moving in, ba moving back towards uh, sort of an era of exploration. And that's always exciting because really at, at the core, that 
that's uh, you know what Star Trek's about. I mean, it's about exploring more than just space. It's exploring in people and societies and all of that. But with all the political stuff that I've done lately, which I love and has been great, I'm anxious to get away from that for a little bit and go back to the the mystery of ex- exploration. I'm really looking forward to that. And for our listeners, um, David, how can they find you or find out more about you? Well, I have a uh, a Facebook page, which is just facebook.com slash drgiii drg3 but the three is roman numeral so drgiii and i'm also on twitter it's david r george iii uh so at david r george iii so uh, those are those are, are two ways and and actually you know people people can find my email address online too if they if they if they're so uh interested in doing that um and i certainly get emails and even letters from from people sometimes so which is always nice i enjoy hearing from readers because i'm one of them you know i mean i'm writing these books and that's great it's spectacular but i'm also you know i, I love reading the other books because they're terrific so I'm, I'm i'm a reader i'm a fan as well which also brings home the fact that you know i have a responsibility here Oh, that's brilliant. And that's a great way to end. And, and I'd like to thank you very much for your time this evening. It's been great talking to you. And I hope that very soon you'll come back on to discuss Revelation and Dust with us. Look forward to it, Michael. Thank you so much for inviting me. I really enjoyed it. Good questions. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Thanks for joining us at the captain's table. And don't forget to turn the page for our next adventure. listening to the captain's table at 10 forward.